chapter 13, as we've been studying the last two weeks and we'll finish today, is uh, kind of a uh, contained, self-contained message from Jesus called the Olivet Discourse. It takes place up on the Mount of Olives. And uh, I would like to just, to help us stay in context, I want to just read up to the point where Bayam read this morning. I also want to thank David uh, for leading the music. He did that very much last second. Uh, I'm kind of losing my voice and uh, wanted to be able to do this. So, thank you, David. Mark chapter 13, verse 1. Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and, I will, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles, and these are the beginning of sorrows. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake. For a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant, and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Then pray that your flight may not be in winter. For in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed. See, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man come in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. As we look at this chapter, I've, I urge you I, to please make yourself a student of the word. Um, I don't 
claim or believe that I have any tremendous gifting to convey this to you what's here but God has given me this great opportunity but what I want to do as much as anything is encourage you to be students of the word as we go through that chapter there are there are keys that stick out and and get yourself accustomed to this so that when you're studying the word on your own you're not just flying through it to put in your day well I got this far on my year of the Bible no you're 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 studying to show yourself approved unto God so that you can be used by God with his word. Look for the words that are repeated. There are, interestingly, in the portion that we're going to look at today, there are portions of that that are repeated five times. There are other things that are repeated three times. There are unique sets of words that are used. And I think it helps open up what sometimes seems mysteriously blurry. Now, there are mysteries here that, that we're not going to unravel. Uh, that would be something. But there are some things that we can't understand, I think, that are specifically mentioned to us here. So don't just sit back and hope that somehow God speaks through this old man up here at the top, at the podium, and somehow stirs your heart. Dig into the Word as we go into it. Okay? Um, my wife, uh, Sherry, and I, we were sound asleep uh, one night over about 10 years ago when a strange sound woke us at about 2 o'clock in the morning. I stumbled out of bed and glanced out the window and, and saw nothing. My mind began to clear a bit as I walked into the living room and I, I realized the sound sounds like a, a car or a truck or something honking right outside our house. And I cautiously opened the front door. We're, we're out in the country and with that kind of sound I didn't know what would be there. And I didn't see a thing when I opened that front door. So I stepped out on the back porch and suddenly something snapped me to full alert. As I saw our metal barn was completely engulfed in flames about 20 to 30 feet high. It was full of tools, it was full of clothing, gifts, uh, chicks, all sorts of things, bicycles, and it was up in smoke. The honking that woke us was from a semi-truck and trailer parked along Highway 296 which ran right by our little 75-acre wannabe farm. He had seen it as he drove by in the middle of the night and began to just stop there and lay on his horn to wake us up. He had already called 9-11, so the volunteer fire department from nearby Potwin was on their way. But our whole family was suddenly rocked into action. One of us was spraying down the nearby chicken coop to keep it from catching on fire. Another one of us was over there spraying down the south end of the house to keep it from igniting from the sparks that were blowing on it. And one of us was out there bringing some of the vehicles away from the burning building so that they wouldn't catch fire as well. After what seemed like forever, uh, the fire trucks arrived and we basically watched it all go up in a flame. But we thank God that there were no deaths, there were no injuries actually, and the house was unscathed. When we had gone to bed that night, we were completely unaware of the unknown danger that would shake our family. But thank the Lord we were spared. But there is another day that is coming that will be a far greater excitement than that night and be just as unexpected. It will impact the entire earth and all those who live and have ever lived on this planet. On that day, that day, some of us will be spared as we were on our little farm. But even more, Jesus will say to some of us, Come, you blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for from the foundation of the world.
But just as certainly others will be told, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. There is no middle ground. There is no neutral. I listened to a gospel presentation recently. And uh, it, it was very pleasant. And some good things were shared. But, but it was really only half of what is at stake here. The opportunity is immense that we have to be children of God. But there is a final judgment that awaits because we're not just dealing with a sin problem. We are wretched sinners in rebellion against the God who created us. And sadly and justifiably, we will suffer for eternity if we do not come to Christ and accept His payment on our behalf. Jesus describes this morning the known and the unknown to His disciples in Mark 13. The known and the unknown. But in the final analysis, what He is telling them and us to do about it. What is He telling us? What is He telling us to do about all of this we've been reading about in Mark 13? That is the question upon which your eternity hangs. And let's see what He says this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to Your Word. We are so thankful that we have it, that we don't have to rely on a, somebody like myself or someone else coming up with good stories or anecdotes or something, Father, to, to move people in a blind direction. But we have the Word of God that is living and powerful, sharper than a double-edged sword, that pierces even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, that Your Word, it, it's like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. It's like a lamp into our feet. Lord God, thank you. Thank you that it is perfect and pure in all its ways. Please open it up to us. Lord, you have said in your word that these things are spiritually discerned. We understand that it doesn't matter who speaks. It doesn't matter who reads or studies. Unless we have your spirit, Father, we will not know a thing about you. So we ask in your, in your mercy... Lord, in your kindness, for your glory, that you would give us your spirit to teach us this morning. Thank you for your word. Amen. Here is what you will know in Mark chapter 13, verses 28 through 31. What is near? Verse 28 says, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Now there's, there's a key right here that I want you to pay attention to. The Greek word for these things. These things is used five times in Mark chapter 13. Look at Mark 13 verses 1 through 4. Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall be not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? These things is a key that unlocks the interpretation for us. As you can imagine... After hearing Jesus declare that this huge, magnificent, spiritual edifice is going to be completely obliterated, these guys have questions. 
So once Jesus sat on the heights of Mount Olivet, four of them, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, they come up to him and ask them the questions that they're probably likely ready to explode with. They've heard him say this. They can't believe what does he mean. And so they get him there. And Matthew gives us a more complete record of their question. He says, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Luke, in chapter 21, says, and what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? So if we combine the three Gospels, we have, when will this catastrophic destruction of the temple happen? That's what Jesus had said. This is going to be destroyed. They're asking, when will this happen? Secondly, what will be the signs leading up to its destruction? And I believe in the minds of the disciples. They assume the destruction of the temple must be in tandem with Jesus' final return at the end of the age. So they ask, what are the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? You know, sometimes we don't know enough about a subject to make the correct statement. Or even ask the right questions. Or we make some assumption in our mind and tie subjects together asking questions based on our own limited amount of understanding. This is, this is an extremely tough time for these disciples. The uncertainty, the danger is everywhere. And they hear their, their master saying these things. They still can't comprehend Jesus' repeated claims when he says, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. Or in Mark chapter 10 when he said, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day will he will rise again. We cannot even grasp what they must have felt when Jesus is saying this. We sometimes... Get on Peter because he said, Lord, that could never be. If you heard Jesus saying this and you'd seen what he'd done for the last three years, healing, bringing people back to life, stopping storms, you wouldn't think the same thing. You, you wouldn't be able to comprehend this. And now here he is. Jesus is on the mountainside and he's looking out on Jerusalem. And he sees the massive, beautiful temple. It is the jewel of Judah. And he knows, he knows that he will be mocked, spit on, beaten, crucified, and buried in that city that he is looking upon within two days. His end is near. He knows it absolutely. Everything that's going to take place. But he also knows. He knows that by his brutal execution, he will conquer sin and he will conquer death for his people. With his perfect lifeblood, he will pay the eternal price for our sins. But this city he's looking on, it will not escape. It will die. And Jesus knows it. In less than a generation, the city of Jerusalem and the temple will be literally, entirely wiped off the face of the earth. Not one stone of that breathtaking temple will still be in place. The death and the heartache will be immeasurable. I think last week we talked about, Josephus said 1.1 million Jews were killed, either by the sword or through slow starvation as the city was under siege. Ninety-some thousand were taken into slavery. 
So, how does Jesus answer their multifaceted and surface level question from the disciples? Well, first of all, his answer covers specifically what they are asking about regarding the destruction of the temple. Which is what they want to know, but as I mentioned, I believe they also assume in his coming and his glory and his judgment and the end of the age all to be part of that. But Jesus goes on to explain the signs that tell of his second return and the end of the age as well. What I want to point out is I believe in the events and descriptions Jesus gives in Mark 13, paralleled in Matthew 24 and 25 and Luke, 20, Luke 21, as well as documented history that we see. It confirms that Jesus is speaking of more than one event. Jesus' message on the Mount of Olives to the disciples does not tell of one climactic episode fulfilled in the destruction of the temple in AD 70 as preterists would understand it. Nor though is it a fully futuristic series of occurrences that will only someday happen now well more than 2,000 years from the day he spoke this and be completely unrelated to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. The verified historic destruction of the city of Jerusalem and its temple that Jesus is looking at as he speaks. He is saying these things as he's looking out at this temple. The destruction provides evidence that this is an example or forerunner of the hated thing that brings the temple to emptiness. And it destroys it to ruin. That is a long version of the abomination of desolation. The hated thing that brings a temple to emptiness and ruin. The abomination of desolation. The temple destruction, a shadow or type, has indeed taken place. It occurred within a generation of Jesus speaking by the Roman invasion and destruction of AD 70. Just as Jesus prophesies in these scriptures this morning in verse 30. He says, use a fig tree as an example. It is springtime as he says this in Jerusalem. As he's explaining things to the disciples, the fig trees throughout the region are literally beginning to show leaves. And the flow flowing with sap. See, the fig trees are some of the, the slowest, latest ones to begin to bud. So when you see the fig tree starting to leaf out, you know that summer is almost here. It's not quite, but you know it's very, very close. In the same way, Jesus tells them, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. It's the parallel passage in Luke 21. It says, when you hear about wars and rumors of wars, nations rising against nations, kingdoms against kingdoms, you hear of earthquakes in various places, famines and troubles, these are the beginnings of sorrows. You will be brought before kings and rulers to testify about me. And the gospel will be preached throughout the known world. You will be hated by all, even family members, because of the name of Jesus. I present to you that all of this is clearly verified through the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts and in the letters of the apostles. These things have taken place. And yet they will take place. The already, but not yet. Jesus tells them, when you see these things happening, get out of Jerusalem. 
Do it fast. Do not hesitate. Don't go back to get anything. Flee. The abomination of desolation is right at the door. Then comes the destruction of that temple. Exactly as Jesus foretold when he walked out through the eastern gate for the final time that Wednesday afternoon. He had said it'll be gone. And it happened. Just as he told us. Now, like the leaves coming out on the fig tree, waking up the certainty of summer, all of these signs Jesus has mentioned and warnings answer their question, when will these things? These things, if you look, it is seen in verse 4, verse 8, verse 29, and verse 30. When will these things take place? Then Jesus says, truly or assuredly, I say to you, This generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. This is a tremendous two verses. And I've already been chided by a couple of guys about how are you going to deal with this generation and those, some of those words that are taking place in there. You know, it's interesting. Many people stumble with this verse and the word generation. Now there are several explanations for how generation could be interpreted. One commentator listed six, including his own. Some say generation means this evil generation, the sinful people who reject God. That we will always have rebellious God-haters until Jesus returns. That is true. Some say that generation means this race, that the people of Israel, they will not pass away until the signs occur. Another believes Jesus is not talking to his disciples at that moment, but to a generation far into the future. Generation represents all those who see the signs that Jesus has talked about when they occur on a future date, signaling his coming and final judgment. As with the ongoing existence of evil people, the ongoing existence of the nation of Israel, and those who are alive when the signs occur that Jesus describes will see his coming If you assume he is talking about some futuristic event in a few thousand years, all of those would possibly be interpretations. But I want to push you. I want to stretch. And I understand, depending on which study Bible you have, uh, you you probably have different positions on all these things. And uh, you may have done some other study on it. And, And I respect the brothers out there that have different positions. And they have gone through and meticulously used Scripture to try to to weigh out their positions. But I do think this solves a lot of pressure, a lot of challenges or questions with clear scripture. If you understand these things used four times in those verses to be the things described in verses 6 through 22 as signs leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, Then Jesus' words to his disciples, Assuredly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. It makes perfect sense. And they have been proven historically. Verses 6 through 23, 22, excuse me, are those signs that lead up to the destruction of the temple. Now early in Mark, let me just say this. Jesus used that word for generation Clearly meaning the people he was speaking to and walking among. Not a far distant future group yet to live centuries or even millennia later. In Mark chapter 8 verse 12. But Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit and said, What does this generation, or why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly I say to you, no sign shall be given to 
this generation. Mark 8, 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Mark 9, 19. He answered him and said, Oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Now Jesus then goes on to present three things to the disciples using another phrase that's repeated. Look at it. What is that? Will pass away. Three different things. Something that will pass away conditionally. The condition is not until certain things happen. This generation will not pass away until Jesus' signs were fulfilled. Then he says something that will pass away absolutely. The most stable things we know in this life, heaven and earth, the sunrise, the moon, the stars in their places, they will all pass away. Absolutely. It's not if, but when they pass away. And then he gives something that will never pass away. And if you think about what he is saying here. With this statement, Jesus declared his deity as clearly as anything else he has ever said. The universe itself will pass away. But what I am speaking will never pass away. That is the word of God. Only God can say that. Psalm 119, verse 152 and 160. Concerning your testimonies, I have known of old that you have founded them forever. The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. That was God speaking this. But this is, this is the exciting thing about these verses. What Jesus then says after he declares his deity really stretches us. Mark 13, verses 32 through 37. We'll start with verse 32. But of that day and hour, no one knows. No one. Not even the angels in heaven. Stop. No. Nor the Son. But only the Father. Here Jesus moves on from the topic of these things and begins a new subject. That day. Look at this. He goes from these things and then he moves to the subject that day. Which is quite different from these things. A lot of times we can read these things. Oh, that's kind of the same thing where we spill over. These things are different than that day. That day is used repeatedly by Old Testament prophets to describe the final coming, the second coming of Jesus or of Yahweh in judgment. The prophet Amos, chapter 8, verse 9. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. 8.13, in that day, the fair virgins and strong young women shall faint from thirst. On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Amos 9.11. Micah, 
The prophet Micah, chapter 4, verse 6. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame, I will gather the outcast, and those whom I have afflicted. Zephaniah 3, verse 11. In that day, you shall not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. Zephaniah chapter 3 verses 14 through 16. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear. Zion, let not your hands be weak. Then Joel chapter 3. And it will come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drip with new wine. The hills shall flow with milk and the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Acacias. Egypt shall be a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness because of violence against the people of Judah. For they have shed innocent blood in their land but Judah shall abide forever. And Jerusalem from generation to generation. And one more. In Zechariah chapter 9 verse 16. The Lord their God will save them in that day. As the flock of his people. For they shall be like the jewels of a crown. Lifted like a banner over his head. On that day. The signs Jesus spoke of in verses 24 through 27. Signal that day. 6 through 22. These things, 24 through 27, that day. These signs increase in size. They increase in in intensity as that day arrives. And it's the picture Jesus has already told them. This is like birth pangs. And they grow and they get more repeated. And they, they get longer and they get more intense and painful. And I'm speaking like I know what I'm talking about and I don't. <laughs> but, but I've seen it for my wife and, and I've read about it. That's as close as I want to get to it. But, uh, but I'm thankful for that. But the picture Jesus gives is they will increase in, t- in intensity and in frequency and, and they will have an impact. The sun will be darkened, he said. The moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall. And the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels. And gather together his elect from the four winds. From the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. Jesus' return is not just near at that point. He is literally returning. It's not in a future is, but he is actually present tense coming at these signs. Lane writes this, the celestial upheavals described in verses 24 through 25, which are inseparable from the second coming and the gathering of the elect. These events represent the end and cannot, cannot constitute a preliminary sign of something else. End quote. In these verses, look what Jesus does. He changes from certainty. Things that are certain. These things are certain that lead up to the destruction of Israel. Leading up to the abomination of desolation. The destruction of the temple. And he goes from something that is certain to something that is mind-bogglingly uncertain. 
He goes from lesser to greater. And we're going to go back to that verse now. He tells the disciples of three categories of beings that simply do not know the day and the hour of that day when he returns. First of all, no one knows. Now this is a very inclusive category. You can say, well, I'm not just anybody, but this can, that you're in this. No one knows. Everyone that has ever existed or will ever exist as a human being on this planet has no idea when Jesus will actually return. Secondly, even the angels in heaven do not know. Even the angels, the angels of heaven who have been with the Father at His side and have witnessed the creation of the world, all of its history. They've seen God become man and come to the earth. They do not know. But even though their lack of knowledge seems incredible, Jesus goes on and says something that is incomprehensible. Nor the Son of the Father knows. Now does that raise any question in your mind? That Jesus says, I don't know. I hope so. If Jesus is God, how would there be anything he does not know? Let alone something as significant as his final return in judgment to end all of creation and create a new heaven and earth. He does not know. Well, some say that Jesus did know. And that this small phrase, nor the Son, is an unfortunate addition to Scripture. This theory is used to try to uphold the omniscience of Jesus as God, but rejects the biblical truth of His human nature, which had limitations. This is so difficult to grasp that there are a very small number of early manuscripts that actually have omitted the phrase, nor the Son. They're out there. They have altered the Word of God. Which is a cursed thing. However, the vast majority of the most reliable ancient documents record Jesus saying here, nor the Son. But there's another attempt. There's an attempt to reconcile Jesus' statement to say that it, He is speaking in a Middle Eastern or a Jewish cultural way regarding shame and honor. Jesus is showing honor to His Father's authority. Although He did know, they say, he would not place himself in such a position of knowledge before his disciples and detract from the supremacy of the Father. Again, this is generated in order to escape the mystery of the Christ being fully God and fully man. But what else, what does, it, what else does it do? It paints Jesus as a liar, a compromiser. Yes, I know, it's, it could be a cultural thing. But nonetheless, he would be lying if he knew and said he didn't. So, the question remains, how could Jesus honestly, as the scriptures clearly read, not know the hour of the day of his return? How? This introduces us to an amazing reality of God called the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. Now, that may sound a little lofty and technical, but, but really it's not. As we look at it, you're going to see, well, yeah, that's the way it's got to be. The hypostatic union. It means, quote, one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood. Truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body that's taken from the 
Chalcedonian definition way back in 451 AD. It's also very helpful to understand what the hypostatic union does not mean. So listen carefully to this. Kevin DeYoung helps with four important details to remember. Without confusion. Without confusion. The Lord Jesus Christ is not what you get when you mix blue and yellow together and end up with green. He's not a tertium quid, a third thing. The result of mixing a divine and human nature. It's not that. Nor is it change. It is, the hypostatic union is without change. In assuming human flesh, the logos, the word, Christ, did not cease to be what he had always been. The incarnation affected no substantial change in the divine son. Thirdly, without division. The two natures of Christ do not represent a split in the divine person. Jesus is not half man and half God. And finally, without separation. The union of the human and divine in the person of Jesus Christ is real organic union, not simply a moral sympathy or a relational partnership, end quote. Now, grasp these things. Example, I, I can ask you, what is eternity? And you can tell me what it's not, and you can give me some ideas, but we're not really going to be able to grasp it fully and describe it in its essence. I was talking with another brother. We were talking about even gravity. We see the effects of gravity. And we know we can even measure it. And we can do a lot of different things with it. But, but what is it? Uh, there, there's a lot of different things. But this is so beautiful. The, the Land of Baptist Confession says the hypostatic union is two whole, perfect, and distinct natures. Inseparably joined together in one person. Without converting one into the other. Or mixing them together to produce a different or blended nature. The person is truly God and truly man. Man, yet one Christ. The only mediator between God and humanity. He is one person with two natures. The Westminster Larger Catechism says, Christ the Son of God became man. By taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, and born of her, yet without sin. I love to think about those things. How can that be? Don't be afraid of that. Dig it. Let, let it blow your mind with the enormity of our God and how he surpasses our grasp. But far and away more significant is what does the Word of God show us? Let's look at a few verses. And I wanted to do this having you look with me. Please turn to John chapter 1. The Gospel of John chapter 1. Here we see the uniting of the nature of the Son of God with the human nature in what we call the Incarnation. John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life. And the life 
was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. Uh, a homeschool study or a Bible study. Take these verses and start listing out the things you see about who Jesus Christ is. Verse 9. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own did not receive him. But as many as received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name. Who were born not of blood. Nor of the will of the flesh. Nor of the will of man. But of God. And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. John, Peter, Andrew on that Mount of Transfiguration, they beheld the glory of this Son of God in the flesh, then glorified by God, as if the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. Verse 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirements of the law, requirement of the law, might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He took his son, brought him into the flesh, brought him to the earth. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11 through 14. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified, he's talking about the Son, Jesus, and those who are his, are all of one. For which reason? He, Jesus, is not ashamed to call us brothers, call them brothers, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren, and in the midst of the assembly I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Now look at this verse, 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, that means they are flesh and blood, they are human beings. He himself likewise, Jesus, shared in the same. Why? That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And release those, that's us who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. We are no longer subject to bondage. We have been released. Then we'll look at the existence or stasis of one man with the nature of God and the nature of humanity. Romans chapter 1 verses 3 and 4. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, His Son, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power through the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. He was of the seed of David in the flesh, but He is God as is demonstrated by His resurrection from the dead. Galatians 4 verses 4 and 5. 
Galatians 4 verse 4, but when the fullness of the time had come, right on time, God sent forth his son. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And then Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. start with verse 5 who being or excuse me let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery or did not consider it something to be grasped to be equal with God but he made himself of no reputation and he took the form of a bondservant a slave and came in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, we stayed on this point of the hypostatic union partly because I love it. So, but I think it's something that we have to grasp to see the, the greatness of our God. And it answers some of these questions. How could he say, my words will never pass away, and then turn around and say, I don't know when that's coming. Because he was God fully, and he was man fully, as he walked on this earth. When we hear Jesus Christ say that he does not know the day or the hour, as the man Jesus Christ speaking to his disciples on that mountainside, he does not know. When he says this, he also makes clear that it is known, but it is only known by his Father. From this perspective, writes Lane, the second coming is not conditioned by any other consideration than the sovereign decision of the Father, which remains enveloped with impenetrable mystery. No one knows. It cannot be penetrated. Now immediately, I'm sure someone is thinking but Jesus said, I and the Father are one. So he must know. He said he didn't. I trust him more than I trust you. But I realize I have not solved the mystery of the hypostatic union. It is declared and it is evidenced in the word of God. So I believe it, though it is beyond the capacity of my infinite mind to grasp its profundity. I thought about this. Wouldn't that have really been something if I had solved that? You know, it would have been amazing. But it won't be solved. It's a mystery that when we see him face to face, we will begin to grasp it more and more. But the reason that many commentaries don't really discuss the hypostatic union with this verse is because what Jesus is pressing hard for his disciples here to know. His purpose is not to disclose his humanity, though he does that. He is doing what? He is commanding his disciples to take heed, watch, and pray. For you do not know when the time is. Verse 33. So what to do about the one thing that is not known? In fact, this is the core of Jesus' Olivet Discourse. It really is. The word watch. Watch. In the final five verses of Jesus' message here, he warns and commands, take heed once and watch four times. Essentially five times he's telling him this. 
Jesus also gives a reason for the imperative warning three times in those five verses. The sentry says, watch, 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 take heed. Why? Because you do not know when that day is coming. No one knows when that day is coming. You do not know when that time is coming. He also commands the disciples to pray. I realize that some of your translations omit the command to pray in this verse. I do not have a good explanation for that. But Luke records the command to pray in chapter 21 verse 36 in every translation I read. So it's appropriate. So watch and pray. One commentator said, Christ sounded a warning for believers to be on guard two practical ways. One, watch is a call to stay awake and be alert. Look for approaching danger. And two, pray emphasizes the believer's constant need for divine assistance in this endeavor. Then Jesus goes to a, a parable again. And let's look at that. Jesus illustrates this whole thing with this parable about a traveling man and his doorkeeper. Verse 34. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch therefore. Each one in that house is given a job but the doorkeeper's job is uttermost. Watch, be alert, keep an eye out for the return of the master. Why? So that when he returns you may be able to welcome him in upon his arrival. And wouldn't you know the parable is perfect because the doorkeeper has an unknown. Second part of 35 says, For you do not know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning. And the doorkeeper has a risk. Lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. Jesus presents the signs that will tell clearly of his final return but he does it in tension with the fact that it will be sudden and unexpected. So the last verse. What I say to you, I say to all. Watch. Now, that is the theme of Mark chapter 13. Mark 13, 5. And Jesus answered them and began to say, Take heed. Verse 9. Watch out for yourselves. Verse 23. Take heed. Verse 33, take heed, watch, and pray. Verse 34, command the doorkeeper to watch. Verse 35, watch therefore. And the last verse, and what I say to you, I say to all, watch. What do you do with Mark 13? You have the abomination of desolation. You have the signs and wonders. You have the destruction of Israel and the temple. You have these cosmic signs that you, you can't even imagine what they will look like. We have things we know for certain and we th have things we do not know at all. Well, here's a bit of a hint. Acts chapter 1 verse 7, the disciples said to Jesus and asked him when he was going to return, if this was the time when he was coming back. And he says, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. So he is not going to let you know. He is not going to reveal his coming to you no matter who you are or how hard you seek it. It won't be known. No, he says, watch, take heed, and be alert. Now, Luke adds an important support to the command of Jesus when he says to watch. He says here, take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life. 
and that day come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. You see, if you are asleep when Jesus returns, He will not gently nudge you and say, Get up, sleepyhead. You will only escape these things, He says. If you watch therefore, pray always. It's a very sober, sober statement. But to those who are awake and alert, living for Christ, fully in with Him, He will say, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, two verses to close with. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 through 12, and it gives us a little idea of perhaps what this looks like. And we desire that each of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. That you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the coming. It doesn't tell us 45 minutes every day in the Old Testament and New Testament or read the Bible through in a year or memorize so many chapters. But it does tell us that we should pursue Christ that we would have the same full assurance of hope until the end. That we would pour ourselves into this. We had a very interesting discussion last night about what does this mean? Uh, we, we sometimes feel stagnant. We feel sluggish, like verse 12 says. We don't want to stay there. Pour ourselves into Christ. Beg for His filling. Ask for His strength. Beg for His manifestation. He would show Himself to you. And I'm not talking about looking up into the clouds and seeing formations. I'm saying stay in His Word. Let Him speak to you through His pure and perfect Word that He has given to us. Isaiah 40 ends this way. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. May that be us. That we will wait upon the Lord but that we will soar, that we will walk, that we will run as we wait for his return. Anticipating that, that is where we will spend eternity. This little blip on the, on the screen of 80 years is gone like that. Our existence now, if you have come to Christ in repentance and faith, it, it's, it, as John says, you have crossed over from death to life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I, I know many men have studied this and have seen some things differently. Lord, where this has not been helpful, I pray that you would cause it to just wash away from the minds of the people, including mine. Where we have understood correctly from your word, please sink it down deeply. Help us to, to dig, Lord, and try to see truth and understand you. Thank you for what you have said. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for your commands and your warnings. Lord, may we heed those. And Father, I pray. I pray for those here this morning that have been coming a long time. And they still resist you. And they play around and they're sluggish. Lord, please don't let them stay there. Please call them to you. And give them new hearts. Lord, use us to proclaim the gospel. And may Christ be exalted until 
you return. We, there's so much happening now, Lord. We could easily say, wow, it's got to be just around the corner. But that corner may be a thousand years away. We do not know. But you are faithful. And we thank you that you are our king. In your name we pray. Amen.